through our Bible study uh, connect groups, but um, when we sing also, it's just a way of vocalising that worship too. It's a great part, a great um, uh, a privilege uh, that God's given to us to uh, sing the gospel and to uh, just express uh, through our voices and through our abilities on, on the instruments and music. So thanks very much for leading us there. Okay, today as we continue through our, um, our series on what does that mean, um, we're going to take a message out of uh, Luke chapter 4, once I can get my Bible there. You know what a new Bible's like? It doesn't quite open up as easily as the old one, you've got to sort of work with it a bit. Here we are. Um, Australia's known as, a, as the country that cuts down tall poppies, unfortunately, aren't we? We have this... Um, sort of syndrome that sort of gathers around us, someone rises up and we want to sort of lop them off and just bring them back down to sort of, you know, back down to the rest of the pack sort of thing. I'm not sure what it is with the so-called tall poppy syndrome. Um, do we not like the position that person's achieved or that uh, thing they've got to? Or are we jealous and wish that we were in that position, wielding some sort of authority or some sort of um, action? Uh, is it some sort of pride, maybe, uh, that we want to cut down those ones that are taller than us and says, I'm more qualified than them, I should be in that position? I'm not sure what drives the whole thing. It's a terrible thing, actually, that we do want to just go down and cut down these tall poppies as such. Well, this is where we're going to find Jesus today uh, in a similar scenario as he comes into his hometown of Nazareth. And uh, we're going to see there uh, just a, a challenging situation uh, where he comes in and they basically reject him. So if you've got your Bibles, go to Luke chapter 4. Is that echoing a bit, Dan? No? Could be just my imagination. Okay, no worries. Uh, Luke chapter 4, and we're going to read from <coughs> verse 14 through to verse 30. And uh, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and the report about him went through, out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marvelled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. 
And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down from the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Uh, Lord, thank you today that we can come and uh, gather around your word. We just ask now, Holy Spirit, that you would uh, open up our hearts to hear uh, this story of Jesus being rejected here at Nazareth. Help us to see uh, the heart that we need to receive the gospel as we think about that today. Thank you, Lord, for this precious, living, eternal word. Amen. One thing I forgot to mention before, um, Deb Spencer had her baby earlier this week. So for those who didn't get her on Facebook, normally Facebook gets around quicker than anything else. Um, she had a little baby girl, Aria? Yeah. Kiara, that was close. It was close. Kiara. Kiara. Don't ask me to wait, but if you ask some of the ladies, they'll probably know that as well. So that's normally an important detail. So yeah, Deb's doing well. Um, Baby's doing well, so they're just at home. Got home about Wednesday, I think. Tuesday, Wednesday. So, yeah, that was good news too. I want to praise God for that. Anyway, back to our uh, passage here. (coughs) Sorry, guys. Uh, I love the Bible, and I love the way the Holy Spirit has wonderfully put this book together for us. It's just amazing how over thousands of years this book can be put together, and then thousands of years later this book speaks directly into our lives, directly into our culture today, with clarity and connection. It's just astounding what God has given to us in this book here. And Luke, as we've read from him today, is a masterful writer. A masterful writer. I believe under the inspiration of the Spirit, he's carefully planned this gospel account for us of Jesus Christ. It's a biography, but it's in a very different way here than what you'd normally see in a biography. Luke has carefully selected uh, various incidences of Jesus' life to give us a picture that is brimming full of the wonder and the glory of who Christ is as he selected these various incidents in life. This passage is no different. It's no different. Uh, Here we see Jesus faithfully and courageously, as it were, come back to his hometown and to share the gospel with them. And the result we see here at the end of it is they actually want to kill him. They attempt to push him off the hill and uh, murder him. Uh, This is where we see the comment that Jesus makes, amongst many others here. He says, a prophet isn't acceptable in his own hometown. And that was the question that was sent. What does that sort of mean here as we think about this? So we will answer that question somewhat in the bigger context of what's actually taking place in this passage here as we think about that and the rejection of Jesus. But first, let's look at the build-up here of Luke as he chooses to share this story with us. Uh, Jesus has just returned from a time of strengthening and testing in the wilderness, where he went 40 days on fasting and, the, and Satan was tempting him horrendously. He's just come out of that and he's feeling strengthened now in the, in the Holy Spirit. And Luke tells us there in verses 14 and 15 that Jesus has come back in this power of the Spirit to Galilee. He's been ministering in the synagogue, so he's been perhaps doing what Michael does, travelling around a bit of a circuit there and doing some uh, rounds of some of the synagogues uh, in those various small villages. And by all accounts, even those couple of verses there, we see that the word has spread quickly that this new teacher is something different altogether. There's something there that's different about this new teacher. He's gone right throughout Galilee. And they're sort of saying, hey, have you heard this man, this Jesus of Nazareth? He speaks like no other rabbi. He speaks with authority and he backs it up with astonishing miracles. That's the word that's sort of spreading around Galilee at this time. Jesus' reputation uh, goes on before him. Um, He comes back now to his hometown of Nazareth. And it's here where Luke spends a large amount of time telling us about this particular incident in detail. And Luke's really, really good at doing that. Uh, You you read his other book, which is uh, the book of Acts. He records there as well. He seems to give this really 
um, comprehensive detail sometimes and it's really important because he's trying to show us something. Jesus gives the gospel here in the synagogue, but he meets with an indifferent and then hostile reception from that. I think through this, Jesus shows us the heart that's required here for receiving the gospel and allowing it to take hold and take heart in our lives. First, let's look at the gospel then as we think about that. Jesus has come back here as the hometown hero in some respects to Nazareth. Uh, There's no way that the people of Nazareth haven't heard of Jesus and all his ministry around Galilee. Galilee is not a very large district. Um, It's probably from here to, say, Kyabram to sort of Murchison for our location. So it's not a big district and there's lots of small little villages sort of dotted around there. And uh, the word would easily travel around that this guy, Jesus, has been doing the rounds here um, in these synagogues. So it was the local custom when Jesus comes back home to invite honoured guests to share from the scriptures. If they knew someone who was in town and perhaps important, they would ask that person, would you like to share from the scriptures today uh, in these local synagogues? And at this point, certainly, um, before the sermon that Jesus delivered, he would have been an honoured guest, an honoured member of the local synagogue there. Uh, And after all, as as we saw in that passage, it was Jesus' regular custom to go to the synagogue. So he lived a very God-honouring life in uh, doing what they do culturally, to go together to hear the scriptures get read out. Luke says there that the attendant hands Jesus the the scroll of Isaiah. These scrolls were kept in synagogues and they were pulled out and given, unrolled, and then you read from there. Jesus unrolls the scroll and carefully selects the passage he's about to read. So you can imagine there, at this particular point, the expectation on this congregation in the synagogue at Nazareth. They've heard lots about him. This is the one who's done so much stuff over these last few weeks in and around Galilee. His penetrating teaching and these miracles that they've all heard about. So the expectation's really building here as Jesus stands up. And that's what you had to do to show honour on these synagogues. You stood to read the scriptures. And he reads there from Isaiah 61 and 58, but we see it in verses 18 and 19 in uh, chapter 4 here. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. In the story, Jesus hands the scroll back to the attendant and then he takes the position of seating, which is the position a teacher would take now to actually talk about that passage he's just read. And as we see there in Luke's uh, account, that there's not even a whisper around the whole synagogue at that time. Everybody's eyes are fixed upon this uh, honoured teacher who's come back to them. Every eye is uh, intently focused upon him, about what will he say next. Jesus then starts this sermon after reading those scriptures with these really startling words. He says there in Luke 4.21, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. They will be really astonishing words here that Jesus has just said. Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of the gospel. That's who I am. I am God's appointed Messiah. I am here to bring you freedom from sin guilt, shame and condemnation. I am here to set the prisoners free from the bondages that have trapped you in despair and brokenness all of your lives. I am here to give you a vision of the eternal glory of God, to open up your eyes, as it were, to see God. I am here to usher in the season of God's 
generous grace and favour. What Isaiah has prophesied, what I've just read, is now being fulfilled in me, is Jesus what he's saying. This is no pipe dream. This is no illusion. I'm here to open up your eyes to life in all of its fullness. In me you will find peace and contentment and real purpose. It is me. This is the gospel. This is the good news that Jesus says. And it's being fulfilled before your very eyes right now as I speak. You will think, whoa, what a sermon they've just heard. What a talk that Jesus has just given. The one they've heard about that has come and delivered God's word from Isaiah in the flesh. The one that they've heard about, spoken about many, many times through the, uh, the book of Isaiah as it's been written, uh, opened up and, and read to them through the, the servant songs. You think, this is him, he's in the flesh. You would have thought that they would be in raptures. You would have thought they'd be carried away thinking, this is the one we've been waiting for in the goodness of God for sending the Messiah to us. And now we get to see him in the flesh. You thought that would be their response. Close enough? try that. I'll just stay fixed in this point. You would have thought, how will they respond then? How will they respond after hearing that? What will they do? Well, we see it's a mixed response. It's a mixed response. It did start off well, but then the hardness of their hearts was revealed very, very quickly. These guys actually had hard hearts here in the synagogue at Nazareth. We actually see a picture of their response in the same incident recorded for us in Mark chapter 6. So let's read through that as he gives a bit more detail about that. He went away from there and came to his hometown, this is Jesus, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary and the brother of James and Josie and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. First of all, these guys were astonished. They were marvelled at his teaching. They were just thought, this is just, this is like um, a bolt out of the blue, someone speaking with clarity and authority. Jesus spoke so truly, they couldn't fault it, what he said. And what he said was so right. But then their true colours actually began to come through, unfortunately, with these people here in the synagogue at Nazareth. They said to themselves, Oi, hang on, hang on, oi, oi, wait. We know who this guy is. He's the little boy we've seen growing up here at Nazareth. He's the kid we've seen out in the street kicking all the stones around on the road. He's the young guy who became a carpenter just like his father. He's just that ordinary guy who fixes our furniture. And look, here's his brothers, here's his mother, here's his sisters. We know who he is, he's just little Jesus. We've seen that. So who does he think he is trying to tell us that he's fulfilled this scripture right before our very eyes? See, their hearts are becoming known now. Hardness is beginning to actually, as it were, appear through their reactions. They've heard all the reports 
that have gone around Galilee. The word has come before Jesus even arrived of all the stuff that he's done. And they can't deny the miracles that have occurred. Many people have testified to that fact. They can't deny his truth. Their hearts are hard and they don't believe who he is. And at this time, Jesus knows exactly what they're thinking. He knows exactly what they're thinking. He knows precisely what their hearts are doing at this moment. And Jesus shows us that there in verse 23 as he sort of reads their minds, as it were. Look in verse 23, he says, And he said to them, so Jesus is now addressing the people in uh, Nazareth, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Jesus is saying this, exactly what they're thinking. Do us a miracle, Jesus. Do us a miracle so that we'll believe. He did it at Capernaum, surely you can do it here. Prove yourself. Show us who you really are. Come on, do that. Jesus, there's a crippled guy over here. Come and heal him. Do something for us. This is what they're thinking in their minds here in this place. You know, what you've done in other places, do it here. This is a hard heart. This is a hard heart here that's thinking like that. A heart that doesn't believe. This is a heart that even if it does see a miracle, it's amazing how it still finds a way to be sceptical or doubt really what has taken place at all. It'll be looking for any way possible to try and throw doubt over what's happened in the, in the, over the whole situation. And this hard heart will never receive the gospel. A hard heart will probably hear the truth and won't fault it at all, They'll hear the gospel presented and they won't disagree with the truth of it as such. He or she will listen and listen very carefully perhaps and quite possibly think it's completely reasonable what someone's just said to me here as they've explained the gospel. They'll hear all that, yet they'll walk away and they'll say, that's not for me. That's not for me. Thank you very much, you know, but that's not for me. A hard heart will hear about the brokenness of this world and it won't disagree. It'll look around and say, yeah, I see all that. They'll hear about God's justice and they'll think that seems right. They'll hear about God's sacrificial love in sending Christ to save us and they'll hear about Jesus showing that love at the cross and they'll think, well, that sounds really good. But then they'll walk away and they'll say, it's not really for me. They won't disagree with it, but the hard heart actually won't embrace it or take it on board. Often one of the biggest problems with a hard heart is they think that they don't need it, the good news of Jesus Christ. They don't need saving. They don't need rescuing. It's not for me. They think they're doing all right on their own when someone's in a hard-hearted situation. They believe that their own good life will get them in to heaven. They don't need saving. They're already good enough. And this is what the deception of sin does in a hard heart. It deceives us. And in this self-deceived state, we can easily convince ourselves that we're not that bad. And we often do this by comparing ourselves with other people. I'm not as bad as that person over there. I'm actually not living like that person there. And we begin to deceive ourselves in this hard-hearted situation. I don't need this. It's not really for me. It's for that other person over there. It's not really for me. These are the hard hearts we're seeing here in Nazareth at the synagogue. And sometimes these people are even sitting in a church and have been for a long, long time. They may hear the truth of the gospel and not disagree with it, and they believe it's for somebody else. It's not for me. I don't need that. 
And this is what's happened in Nazareth. They've sat in their synagogue for weeks and months and years hearing the scriptures talk about the coming Messiah. And particularly from Isaiah, it's been read plenty of times. The servant of the Lord's coming to rescue them. But they don't think they need rescuing. They're very happy in their lifestyle. They're very happy in their religious way of life. It's not for me. It's actually for someone else. Their hearts are hardened towards Jesus and the gospel of the good news that he's bringing them, even right here in this passage in Luke. Jesus cites another reason too for their hard hearts, and that's in verse 24 when he says, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. It's a really unfortunate thing, but, but the old saying says, familiarity breeds contempt. In, in other words, people will totally discredit the message because of the messenger. Though someone else will accept it in another town uh, purely because they, oh, we don't know who, uh, sorry, we, he comes to us as a complete stranger and we actually somehow uh, don't have all that background knowledge of his life that sort of discredits the message. But this is what's happened with them in um, the synagogue at uh, Nazareth. We easily allow the, the vessel or the messenger and our familiarity with them to blind us from the truth of the message. Oh, it's only Todd. He's just an orchardist. Actually, I went to school with him. I know what he got up to in school. How could he possibly be able to get up here and say anything sort of reliable from the scriptures? It just happens, doesn't it? Some of you are laughing already. I can see it. I went to school with Joe, so it wasn't for you though, Joe. But these people were blinded from the truth because of the blinkers of familiarity they'd sort of placed upon themselves. Ah, it's only Jesus. It's only that little boy we knew growing up here. And they discounted the message and allowed their hearts to be hardened purely because of familiarity and the contempt that they brought with that. Jesus was just a tall poppy they were trying to cut down. So because of this self-sufficiency and this pride from these hard hearts, uh, these people at Nazareth were not going to take anything on board that Jesus had to say as far as the truth was concerned. Jesus now then proceeds then to show these people the attitude of the heart you must have to receive the gospel. They're doubting Jesus, the we, these ones in the synagogue, and he's showing them up for that. He's beginning to actually expose that. But he doesn't leave them there in that exposed position as he sort of says, hey, you know, a prophet's not without honour except in his own hometown. He shows them also the soft heart that we must have to receive God's grace. And Jesus does this incredibly here with a couple of little odd stories from First and Second Kings as we hear about Elijah and Elisha there. The first one there is in verses 25-26. This is a story here or a picture of somebody who recognises they're absolutely destitute and they they know that they are broken, poor and empty as we think about this widow here in uh, verses 25-26. Israel is in deep drought at this particular time uh, with this story and it's affecting many, many nations. The prophet Elijah is told to go to this little known village called Zarephath in in, uh, in the land of Sidon, which wasn't um, an Israel territory, and he's asked a widower there to prepare him a meal. And she replies, uh, look, we've only got enough oil and flour left to make one last meal for my son and I, and after we eat that, we will die. So she's saying things are pretty desperate, there's not much left for us here. Elijah says, okay, make your last meal first for me, and then see whether your flour and oil runs out. A big call there. What's she going to do? Does she and her son eat the last meal, or does she do what Elijah says and uh, make it for him? What's the woman supposed to think? Could this be true? 
you know, what have I got to lose? I'm totally down and out and I'm deficient in every single thing in life. I'm down to my last bowl of flour, my last litre of oil. What am I going to do here? Can I believe what I'm being told? So she goes ahead and makes her first meal for Elijah and then she discovers that her flour and oil do not run out for the rest of the famine that is across that land. She experiences the goodness of God. Jesus is showing these people at Nazareth that that is how they must come to him to receive that grace. If you really want to hear the good news to the poor, then you just need to realise how poor you are spiritually, that you're not sufficient like you might think you are, that you're not self-sufficient in your own religious lifestyle. You need to see how totally deficient you are, just like this widower in Zarephath in Sidon. Jesus is saying to receive that gospel that he's bringing to us, you need to realise your complete insufficiency in yourselves. Didn't sit too well with the local synagogue. Now because of their very religious lifestyles, they thought God was right on their side and they were building a sufficiency in themselves by their religious lifestyle. But now Jesus is beginning to expose that. He doesn't stop here though. He doesn't stop here, he moves on and he goes to the next story here. And this is an example here of the sort of heart you need to receive his grace through a humble heart. It's another great story that comes out of Kings. And we see it just uh, alluded to in verse 27 where he says, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were, was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. Um, great to go back and read these ones, but this one just in a, in a bit of a nutshell. Uh, An Israelite girl is taken captive as a slave back to Syria where this Naaman lives. He's um, uh, the commander-in-chief of the Syrian armies and she works in Naaman's house uh, and she knows of his condition of leprosy. She says to um, uh, to Naaman, hey, you need to go see um, Elisha and uh, um, he'll fix you up. He'll uh, he'll, uh, restore you. So Naaman goes to Elisha's house. So here he is with these uh, large sort of crew of people with him. Uh, he rolls up to Elijah's house and Elisha doesn't even go out to see him. Instead, Elisha sends out a servant and he says, tell Naaman to go down to the River Jordan and just wash yourself there seven times and then you'll be all good. So you can imagine the commander-in-chief of the Syrian army going down there and thinking, what is going on? He hasn't even come out to see me. He would be furious doesn't he realise who I am? He's only sent out a servant to come out and just tell me to go wash in this uh, river Jordan like seven times. Actually, aren't the rivers in Syria far better than this dirty old river Jordan here in Israel? What's up with this guy? I couldn't even bother to come out to see me. So Naaman actually turns his tail on um, Elisha's house, feeling angry and humiliated at this point, if you follow the story through. Down the track, who knows how far, Naaman's servants plead with him, the servants that he brought up with him from Syria. He says, what have you got to lose? Why don't you humble yourself, admit you can't heal yourself, and just go and wash in the River Jordan and just do what the prophets asked you to do? Humble yourself in this situation. So Naaman does. He humbles himself, goes in and washes in the River Jordan, and he's completely healed of leprosy. Completely healed of leprosy. Jesus is saying, if you're proud like Naaman was initially, you'll never receive the gospel that I have to offer. A proud heart will never be able to receive it. Don't take pride in your religious achievements. Don't take pride in your social status or your own strength and your resilience or your you-can-do-anything attitude. 
if it's going to be like that in a hard-hearted situation, filled with pride, you will not receive the grace and the gospel that Jesus brings to us. But instead, Jesus would say, humble ourselves before God's mighty hand and receive uh, his help in our helpless, sinful state and then receive of his generous grace. Well, this didn't sit well with the synagogue either when they heard this. You think we're both sufficient in ourselves and you think we're both full of pride. They've actually heard enough of Jesus now. They're now filled with rage towards him. And what do they do? How dare you speak to us like that, Jesus? How dare you accuse us somewhat of being sufficient in ourselves and filled with pride? And that somehow this is a massive roadblock for us to God. We've already got access to God through what Moses has done for us. They did not take Jesus' words or examples well at all. So what do they do? They corralled Jesus up to the top of the hill on where the town was built with the whole idea of just pushing him off and to murder him and to kill him. Jesus calmly walks back through the crowd and left them to their rage at that particular time. So I ask myself as I think about that, why has Luke given us this passage here? Why does he put this, put this passage here right near the start of his book even when there's lots of other stuff that Jesus will do in the, in the oncoming chapters? As I thought about that, I really believe this passage here sets up Luke's gospel account right from the outset to show us that it's all of God's grace when we come to him. That it's a work of God in our hearts to do that. To find salvation from our sins in Christ that we must come with a soft heart to experience his liberating grace in our lives. Because Luke, Luke could have spent a lot of time on those, all that good stuff around Galilee with those great reports, but for some reason he picks this one particular aspect here where Jesus is rejected at Nazareth. But I think here he's showing us and highlighting for us the heart attitude that we need to have to receive uh, from God's grace. And it's through a humble heart and re- realising our absolute insufficiency in ourselves. If Luke was speaking to us today, he would say, please don't be like the people at the synagogue of Nazareth. Don't hear the words of Jesus and allow our hearts to be hardened as we've listened to him. He would say, please hear the words of Jesus. Please hear the words of liberty to the captives, release for the oppressed, sight to the blind and the season of God's grace. But don't let your self-sufficiency or pride come in and harden your hearts so that you don't truly receive that word. And Luke would say this, that we can only be humble and hungry by seeing that Jesus became humble and hungry for us. He would say that. He would say that Jesus left the glory of heaven and made himself nothing to take our place. Jesus humbled himself in obedience to die in our place. And Jesus did so that we could now receive his grace and live in humbleness before him. Luke would say, look at what Jesus has done for us. Look at the grace that he's shown for us. That he who had everything laid it aside and humbled himself so that we could know his strength and know his love. Jesus is the ultimate tall poppy. But he allows himself to be willingly cut down so he can actually make a way possible for us to receive the grace and strength that God gives to us. Here's a great story as I just uh, close this for us today, which highlights um, uh, the position of humility that uh, enables God's grace to work in and through our hearts. And it's a story from uh, Luke chapter 15, the prodigal son, which many of you will be familiar with that. 
the prodigal son, he actually uh, uh, receives his inheritance, but he doesn't sort of receive it in land. He wants to get a cash value. So the father uh, cashes out and gives this uh, prodigal son um, the cash. And uh, he takes that and he went to the nearest big city that he could find, uh, filled with entertainment and pleasure and all the bright lights that those cities bring along. He loaded up his credit card, which was a gold card. He filled it right up with all the cash that he'd received uh, from his father in the inheritance. And he went out and experienced it all in this great big city of full of, uh, filled with lights and pleasure and sights and sounds. Whatever he wanted, out would come the gold card. He would take it, stick it on the card. He had plenty of booze, he had plenty of women, he had plenty of fast cars. He said he lived it up. He experienced all life could offer him. He didn't need saving in his eyes. He was completely self-sufficient, the prodigal son. He had his life under control. Everything was going according to how he planned it, or so he thought. Then one day the gold card ran dry, and he was broke. The cars were repossessed, the women left him, and the party was over. It all came crashing down, as it often does in those scenarios. But it did for the prodigal son. The best he could do was find a job in a local pig farm, as the Bible tells us. Clothed in rags and hungry enough to eat the pig food, destitute of all and humbled of heart, he now heard the call of the gospel in the middle of that pig pen, in the middle of life's brokenness and despair. He actually realised the love of God uh, in that place of hopelessness. Up until then, though, he didn't need that. When he was living the life, or the so-called life, he didn't need that. But now he realised that he was lost without it. Luke would tell us that's the picture there of a humble heart that finally comes to its senses and receives God's grace into our lives. Don't be like the synagogue at Nazareth. Stop running away from what we know is true and let our hearts be humbled by what Christ has done for us so that we can receive his grace and receive the message of the gospel and apply it to our lives and that we'll see him uh, transform us. That's the story here that I, I, I see as I look at uh, Luke chapter 4 as he's rejected at Nazareth. Let us pray. Father, thank you. Thank you today that we can uh, come and uh, relive this story of uh, Jesus being rejected at uh, Nazareth. Uh, Lord, today as, as we think about even that question, Lord, um, a prophet's not without honour except in his own hometown. Lord, how so easily we can just allow familiarity, Lord, as it were, breed contempt and we just shoot down the message for the sake because of the messenger. God, I pray today you'd help us to look beyond the messenger, as it were, and look to the truth of the message. And the truth of the message today, Lord, is what Jesus has said, that we need to realise who we are in that sense of brokenness, and destitution spiritually before you to receive that gospel of grace. God, we need to have a humble, humble heart to receive that gospel of grace because sin so easily deceives us and tells us that we don't need it. God, I pray that you would open up our eyes today through these couple of stories here and this whole situation at Nazareth to see. Uh, the incredible grace that Christ has shown us, that he would be the ultimate tall poppy who would be cut down in our place, uh, leave everything behind and come humbly to serve us so that we would uh, know him and know his grace. Let that word come alive in our hearts today, Lord, I pray.
For maybe those who have heard a number of times, maybe even sitting here today, I pray, God, that you would take the truths in these stories and, as it were, open their eyes up uh, to the wonder and the glory that Christ has uh, given to us through his death at Calvary. Father, we do thank you for that and do praise you for that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Joe's going to come up and just um, lead us in uh, communion around the launch table. So I'm not sure who the guys are for handing it out. Alex rising up. Sammy, can you go help out as well, please, mate? Excellent. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Joe. is pretty daunting. <laughs> Can you hear me? Cool. Okay. Um, I'm partway through reading a biography at the moment about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, Dietrich was born early last century into a highly intellectual, well-off family in Germany. And he was a brilliant pianist and his family expected him to pursue that for his career. At 14, however, he made the decision to become a theologian. And over the next few years, his family tried really strongly to discourage him from pursuing this course, but he persisted and excelled in his studies and gained his Doctorate of Theology at 21. So I'm just partway through this book, and so I'm a bit further along than this part, but, um, you know, he's he's quite a brilliant young man and and very, he's quite a humble man, but um, you wouldn't perceive him as such. Thanks, Elliot. Um, my book was lying down on the floor and I glanced at it and, and read this phrase that's on the back of the, of the cover. It says, Who better to face the greatest evil of the 20th century than a humble man of faith? And actually, it really startled me, actually, just that phrase. It was like, oh, I've just been reading about this guy. He's just far from humble. You know, like, as in his achievements are far from humble achievements, but he was actually a very humble man and he never... Um, you know, made big of himself and that sort of thing. So he was, um, yeah, and I thought, yeah, okay, so what we know about this man, he he deserves to be celebrated, but he doesn't look for that. Um, so in his humbleness, Bonhoeffer goes on later in the book to speak out against Hitler. So right at the start of when Hitler rises to power in Germany and and his mistreatment of Jews... He was instrumental in setting up the professing church in Germany and he clandestinely trained pastors during the war as well. He wrote extensively as well. Some people may have read his books. He ended up being imprisoned by the Gestapo and was hung a month before the end of the war. So this man was humble, but he was not weak. He was seeking God's glory instead of his own glory. Now, Jesus is the most humble man who ever lived. And we know about him. He is the word of God. He's the creator of the world. He's the king of kings. We can go on and on. Yet we know how great and how powerful Jesus is. And this makes his humbleness even more amazing Jesus had the power to wipe out his opponents with a single word. But he chose to be humble and to do God's will. 
He chose to be humiliated, to endure the pain of the cross, to glorify God, to benefit you and to benefit me. How can we not marvel at our Christ? How can we not be grateful? Let us thank Jesus. Dear Jesus, we are eternally grateful for your greatness and your humbleness. Without both, we would be destitute without you. Help us also to follow your example and be humbly seeking to glorify you and to never cease being thankful. Amen. Let's eat and drink.